0: So Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade. Early well, this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of the Vosges Mountains.
1: Bonjour, my name is Clément Alvat, a young Frenchman, history buff, and author of Till Victory: The Second World War by Those Who Were There, published by Pen and Sword Books in October 2020. Next. Month, in this new episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War Two and peace, I'm having a conversation with Alan Green, a radio operator in the 573rd Signal Aircraft Warning Battalion. I first talked to him a few months after the release of my book here in France, as he had heard that his friend and fellow lawyer Gunter Half, who served in the 95th Infantry Division, wasn't it so. Alan contacted me out of the blue and he let me know that he was a veteran himself. He saw the landings on Omaha Beach from the deck of the USS Echinar and took part in the whole campaign here in Europe, spotting enemy aircraft from the ground for the US Army Air Forces. His story is very interesting and I ended up including him in the Tome 2 that was just released here in France. This is a special podcast, because tomorrow we'll celebrate the 75th anniversary of the end of the war. And it made sense to release Allen's episode now, as it clearly shows how difficult it was for the veterans to readjust to civilian life. We always think that Coming home and World War II finally coming to an end was a big, great celebration. But these young men who put their lives on hold for years, had to start over from scratch while dealing with trauma. I can't thank Alan enough for sharing all these very personal memories with all of us. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with this very kind veteran, Alan Green. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, Allen, How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. How about you?
1: I'm fine, thank you. Very happy to uh, have you on the phone. Are you ready to do
0: this? I'm ready.
1: <laughs> okay. My first question is, uh, do you remember when war was declared?
0: I was 17 and uh, in high school and uh, we used to you know, go to the movies on a Sunday afternoon and uh, then go to a hangout called the Igloo. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And when we got to the Igloo that day, it was, of course, December the 7th, 1941. So they were drafting guys who were 21 years old. Nobody knew where Pearl Harbor was. But when we found out the Japanese had, had bombed us, why, we all thought, hey, they'll never get to us. We'll never have to go because we had four years to go before we were 21. Mm. And uh, well, that turned out to be a little different because uh, when I finished my senior year in high school and I was 18, I got drafted. I got the draft notice in uh, January of 1943, and uh, we went for it, You know, the induction where they kind of screen you to see if you're fit. And um, my problem was. I, I passed all of the tests down there except for the eye test, and I had very poor eyesight. Uh, come in, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was 2400 without correction. So, uh, that put me in a thing called limited service,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which meant that I guess that you couldn't be, you know, in combat. So, um, uh, that was my introduction. So, then when we the when we finally got the call to report, we had the largest number of young men leaving our town that had ever been, had, that had ever been left for service. Mm. And um, the town I lived in then was Cobleskill, Illinois, and I I'd moved there from a very small town uh, a couple of years before. But uh, they had the band there playing you know, music, and the mothers and the fathers were there, and it was all, it was very exciting. Mm. But uh, what I'd like to, uh, you know, record today is that when uh, that morning, before I, you know, reported, uh, my mother and father worked in a defense plant, Mm -hmm. and they had to leave uh, to go to work. Very early, around five in the morning, and uh, that morning, that my mother came into my bedroom to to wish me goodbye, and uh, and she bent down to kiss me, and uh, I felt tears coming on her face, and uh, I I I just couldn't handle that, so I just pretended I was still asleep, but. I'll never forget that moment. And uh, so then it was off to the uh, off to the train station, and we boarded a train down to uh, Scottfield, Illinois, which was uh, way down in the south part of the state. And uh, there we started to you know, become part of the army. They took away our civilian clothes. They gave us uh, they fitted us up army clothes. Mm-hmm. They uh, gave us a, a shots, you know. I mean, you, you know, tetanus and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was late by the time we got down there, and so uh, they finally took us to a barracks. And barracks with about forty guys up there. And uh, from then I, all of a sudden, you know, you're alone, and you're lying there, and you're. I said to myself, I thought, these guys are all snoring. And, I said, what do I get myself into here? Mm. But then, you know, after after a while we took the intelligence test and we took some other test and then and then they sent us off to basic training. Well am I going, you know, way behind your question?
1: <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Thank you for, for sharing all this. Uh, what was the job of your unit? What what was your role in it?
0: Well my role I was a radio I was a radio man and uh and that's what I'm, you know, getting to because of that limited service designation of the poor eyesight. After basic training, when, you know, they generally sent you off to some school, you know, mm-hmm. either the infantry or radio school or you know, or fork school or some kind of school. And my IQ was like like 129. I was, you know, I was that was pretty much. But uh, they would uh, that would be enough to get you into officers' training, but uh, first of all, my eyesight wouldn't allow that. So after I finished basic training down in Florida, they never sent me to school. They didn't know what to do with me you from know, that, I guess, because of my limited service. So I took basic training again. I had two basic trainings, you know, I learned to drill and, and uh, shoot, and all that stuff. So finally, they uh, gave me orders to go to Tampa, Florida to radio school. And I learned I learned to be a radio operator, a radio man. Our job was to uh, accept messages from the radar operators of incoming aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, enemy aircraft, and then we would radio the uh, technical air commands to go up and intercept. That was our primary function at first.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, we were a non-combat unit, but we were you know we were issued weapons and we were taught how to how to shoot because we had to be pretty close to the front lines mm-hmm. because the radar wasn't all that effective.
2: Mm-hmm. It
0: would, it was not, you know, like it is now where it could go, you know, for miles and miles.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that, that was our primary job. And as the war went on and at the end, the radar got a lot better where you could even, we could take, uh, and track iron planes into enemy targets, even in bad weather, and tell them when to, when to drop the bomb.
1: Mm. And then you were sent to the UK. What was life like over there, uh, before the invasion of France?
0: Well, we got to England in uh, like February of 1944, went over on the Queen Mary, uh, with, uh, about fifteen, sixteen thousand 16,000 other soldiers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one night you, you know, you slept on the deck and one night you got in a bunk and it was, it was a zigzag and a lot of guys, of course, got sick. But we got over there in about five, six days.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, we landed in, uh, Gurk, Scotland and got on a train and they took us down to hanley on Thames. Henley is about 40, 50 miles from London. It's a, it's a famous town down there where they had a regatta on the Thames rivers right on the Thames. It's my recollection that we didn't really do anything
2: mm-hmm.
0: operational while we were, while we were there. So it was, uh, you know, getting to know the natives or getting to know the, uh, getting to know the locals a little bit. Uh, as I say, it was just, finding out which, which pub was getting their beer uh, allotment <laughs> a, a, a in and spirits because that was rationed over there. So yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> And, and, and then of course, there were the girls, you know. Yeah. But that was what life was like. And uh, basically, we were just waiting, you know, and nothing was happening.
1: But you had to keep the secret of what was coming. Did you even know anything about the invasion?
0: Yeah, you know, then then we got orders. I think they were in early May of forty-four. There were orders came out. In fact, I've got a copy of the orders someplace in my files that uh, put the uh, radio men on detached service, which meant that we were just temporarily going to be part of a different unit. Mm-hmm. And uh, the orders were that we were to uh, report to the USS... Achenar, by way of a air base down in southern England, and there's where they really clamped down on us as far as the secrecy was concerned. Mm. Uh, we were not allowed off the base. We were subject to constant uh, roll calls to find out you know, that you were still there, that you weren't you know, letting anybody know what why you were there, or you know, or get any secrets out? I suppose mm-hmm. it was very hush hush. I missed a roll call one time. I got to tell you this story. We were playing uh, playing some card game or something, and I just didn't want to. I didn't want to fall out and answer that roll call because it uh, what we soldiers used to call chicken shit. You know when they when we thought that uh, we weren't being treated right. Mm. I got some punishment, my, and my punishment was to uh, mop out, clean up the message center. And uh, so I got the mop in the bucket, and uh, I'm mopping, and here comes two generals. One was General Casada, who was the general of the Ninth uh, Air Force. I had a good time, and I just came up behind him with my mop and asked him to step aside so I could, so I could mop the area. So I was moving those generals you know, around the room, but <laughs> sort of kind of pleased me. But anyway, that was uh, that was the kind of soldier I was. Yeah. And then uh, it was right around my birthday, which is May twenty. We were loaded on trucks, well, a truck, and uh, they took us to Plymouth. You know, in your uh, book, you know, it didn't translate out to Plymouth, but that was our port, mm-hmm. and there we boarded the Achenar so uh, we immediately went to work on radios, and we were, we were listening to radio traffic, and uh, it was, none of it was urgent or none of it was involved, you know, detection of any aircraft. We worked eight hours on and eight hours on, eight hours on, eight hours on. Eight hours on. And it was very tedious, but uh, that was okay. But one day, i got to tell you, one day I was... Uh, Wandering around, and right next to where the radios uh, radios were was a was a room, and there was a big map in there. The map was a map of the coast of France. You have to realize that as a corporal, you know, as an enlisted man, they didn't really you know, ask you too much for the tactics and uh, yeah. any big decisions. But I thought, oh, something was up here. Nobody had told us that we were just being held for for the invasion. But anyway, I had a sneaky I had a sneaky suspicion that there was some kind of an operation that was going to occur. And then, uh, the night of June the fifth, we were all called together. There was about twenty of us, and uh, this officer who we'd never known or seen before came down, called us together, and he said, "Gentlemen," he said. Tomorrow, we are invading the coast of France. And, you know, you get 20 GIs together coming, mm. and, you know, there's going to be some horsing around and laughing. But I'm going to tell you, those 20 guys, we all went silent. There was not one whisper going on. And with that, you know, he handed out some armbands and said, "U.S." a um, English to French dictionary and a five-franc note that was invasion money that they printed. Mm. And uh, with that, we went back around our business, but I can tell you that we were very, very concerned and didn't know what was going to happen, but we were ready.
1: Yeah. What were your thoughts when you went to sleep that night?
0: We had a confidence. I i I don't know my i I don't remember I know I went to sleep, you know I wish I could answer that, but I was not sleepless i did not lose sleep. I don't think i I had nightmares or anything like that. i just we were just doing those radios eight on eight hours off, and uh, we were doing our job i think i I mentioned to you that uh, you know the next morning my you know the orders where the crew was posted, and, uh, and they said, you know, General Coyier's at a certain hour, and breakfast at a certain hour, and the captain of the ship uh, finished it up with, he said that the rest of this day depends on the will of God and us. I can tell you about the acting you know, I've been, you know, of course, reading a lot about the war now, and, and i found out General Hodges, that was his command ship, Mm-hmm. He was the commander of the First Army, and uh, one of his uh, fellow you know, generals was uh, name of, uh, Bill Keene. I heard Keene talk on a cruise I took around Normandy one time. But anyway, I wish I have known that uh, he and I both were on the Achenar on D-Day. Uh, our thoughts were uh, one of, you know, we had, I had confidence. All you had to do was go up on deck and look and see all the ships. Everything. there. It was quite a day.
1: So you watched the landings on Omaha Beach from the deck of your ship. What could you see from there?
0: Well, we could. Yeah, I could see the uh, the big ships, the cruisers, and the battleships, and the, the destroyers. You know, you know, firing up. A lot of the ships had what they call barrage balloons attached to them. Those were just inflatable jabs that they would, uh, you know, put on the sterns of all the ships to uh, uh, discourage the uh, Luftwaffe from uh, uh, strafing. Mm -hmm. You know, coming down too low, if they they came in to to strafe, they could, you know, hit one of those wires, and that would be the end of Mm them. But uh, what I saw was, uh, I saw the war. I saw debris. Debris in the water not just material debris but human debris people men that were face down and it was uh, a sight that uh, made you kind of say grow up from a from 19 years old to a to a man and and then we were standing there with i had a buddy but in my Moskowitz. Mm-hmm. we were watching everything and um, all of a sudden, Moskowitz says, I'm hit. He caught a piece of shrapnel in his uh, ankle, and that was enough for me. I I didn't want any more of that show, so I went down below. But I do remember one other scene. It's, uh, it seems to me, you know, the weather had cleared. It was, it was, it was fairly clear. I think it was kind of in the afternoon, and uh, here comes, this skiff comes over, or this boat comes over, and and these officers climb aboard the Achenar, and they had to use a what they call the Jacob's ladder, mm-hmm. and it was a rope ladder, and then you you went up the up the ladder. I remember And what a struggle it was for them to you know navigate that ladder because it, uh, the that water is pretty choppy. But then going to the uh, going to Myth At night, in order to do so, you had to go through the crew's quarters, and there was uh, they started to bring the wounded on board. And I looked down, and uh, there was this one GI who was just laying there, and his his eyes were just you know up and up. He was like he was catonic. When I looked at the sheets, I saw he was only had one leg. So I knelt down beside him and. I asked him if there was anything I could do for him, and uh he didn't—he uh, didn't answer me. So uh, that was that day, and I think we were there uh, another four or five days. And I suppose, you know, of course, they didn't consult me, you know, comment about, you know, what they should do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think when the Hodges you know, when they had the beachhead, and I just went ashore and then, then the Achenar, you know, left and went back to England. The 573rd was down at Henley. And then, uh, we went back up to uh, Newcastle on time. That's where we debarked. There was no operations going on there. So we went back over on LSTs, uh, in, uh, I think in August, maybe a little bit later. I got to tell you, this is that, uh, after I graduated from high school in '42, I got a job in a shipyard mm-hmm. in uh, in central Illinois, um, and uh, where they made LSTs. Okay. And uh, it was kind of ironic that uh, I would be, you know, riding one of those in a uniform,
2: yeah. you
0: know, carrying a weapon uh, after just, you know, being a worker on it. But anyway, then we returned to France uh i think in late august of 44
1: what was your job after that in in the month following d-day it was the you same
0: know. it was the same thing we landed in renn r-e-n-n-e-s ring then yes,
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: then we went up to and uh, we were there for a while and then we went into belgium and uh that's where i remember you know really being operational you know planning the radios and And there was quite a bit of traffic, you know, radio traffic going on. There was one night I was taking a message. I get this message. uh, You know, Sam, who was interviewed. uh,
1: Yeah, Sam Kallisle, who was in a previous podcast.
0: said you could recognize certain guys by their fist.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And that uh, that is true. So here comes this message, wanting to know where we were. And uh, the fist I didn't recognize. I told this uh, stranger whose fist I did not recognize to go f himself. Mm. But uh,
1: it was a German.
0: It was a German, I'm sure. Yeah. See, we had to kind of move with the air force. You know, the air force was making airfields. You know, to get closer to their targets. So then they moved us from uh, Vertan, which was like in South Belgium, I think, up to uh, near Maastricht. Mm-hmm. And uh there was a little town up there called again. and that put us right in the crosshairs of the bolts because that's not that wasn't very far from uh Liege. yeah that was quite a time as well you know we but we were working we were working the radio then and and by that time that that they moved me up to headquarters company
2: where we were, where we were
0: you know taking messages. From the different battalions and companies out in the field, letting them know what was going on and so forth.
1: It was another stressful time for you—the Battle of the Bulge.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. a bad time. There was we were in the crosshairs of the German offensive.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I could see, you know, some of the artillery fire going on. They had the the V one and V two rockets going off. I guess they were either shooting at uh, London or at Antwerp,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, which you know Antwerp wasn't very far away. You know, you know Belgium being a pretty small country,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: sometimes those uh, you know those things would cut out. Mm-hmm. You know they you know they made a distinctive noise. That's why we called them buzz bombs. Mm-hmm. And they would cut out, and uh, they would detonate. You know you know pretty close. In fact. We were bivouacking in a, in, a, in a schoolhouse and uh, sleeping on the floor. And one of them went off, and <laughs> he got pretty close, and the, and the concussion was enough to, you know, shake everything up. And uh, this one guy, his name was Sid Kuczynski. <laughs> He'd bring Sid up off the floor, and he would not slam him down on the floor and hurt his back, and next thing you know, he was getting shipped back to the United States. I thought he was one lucky guy, mm. and uh, and then they also had these uh, English-speaking uh, Germans in American uniforms that infiltrated our lines, and and they like to sneak up on you and uh, strangle you and uh, and do all kinds of mischief. So uh, and it was cold, and we were cold because. We didn't have any winter uniforms. You know, some of the brass, I think, Brad, they thought the war was going to be over by Christmas, and there was no use issuing showing us, you know, overcoats and you know things like that. Mm. It was not a, it was not a good time. We couldn't shower. We couldn't, you know, a lot, a lot of things. But uh, I can tell you one story. You want to hear a story? Sure, of course. About the, about the closest I ever came to getting killed. Was by one of our own men, and uh, I was uh, I was on guard duty, and uh, it, was, it was of course it was in Plaidigan. The guys could go downtown to, to this town, and there was a there was a pub or a bar down there. And they drank, and our captain had uh, one of our one of the guys, and tow. his name was Stewart. And Stuart was, uh, he was, he was Indian. He was an American Indian descent. Mm -hmm. He was drunk. And uh, the captain says, Green, he said, you keep Stuart in the compound there. Because he said he's threatened to shoot his, uh, it was Warren Officer Gordon. So anyway, he leaves. Stuart goes in. The next thing you know, Stuart is coming back out. And uh, he was a motor truck guy. And they gave those guys uh, you know, pistols
2: mm-hmm.
0: for, their, for their weapon. So he uh, comes, I said, Stuart, I said, where are you going? And he took that pistol up and put it right in my stomach. Wow. He said, I'm going down and shoot. You warrant Officer Gordon. And I said, he was going to practice on me, to be honest with you. Yeah. Then I started talking loud enough, and I finally got some, somebody came up. And then took him away. And oddly enough, you know, that uh, he got sent down to the infantry because, uh, you know, they were looking for, you know, all the bodies that they could get where the fighting was going on around Boston. So he and another missed it, but all sent down there in the infantry. So that was the end of story. Mm. But that was, uh, that was as close as I came to getting uh, getting my lunch.
1: Mm. Must have been very scary.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, after that settled down, uh, and then we got into Germany. And I think that uh, we got in there either late February or March. And our first location was uh, in a little town outside of muchenkladbach Then we went on up to Munster and then to Brunswick, brunswick we got out. We got out to uh, Magdeburg, which was on the Elba's right there, where, where it ended.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Then they sent us down to uh, a town just about twenty miles from uh, Munich, called mm-hmm. Fürstenfeldbruck, and, and it was it hadn't hadn't been touched by any bombing and everything. So we were we were just being held down there from say, May going over to, uh, you know, Japan, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That was where we encountered, you know, all of the refugees, especially the girls, yeah. you know, finding their way home. Everything was, that was a pretty nice time.
1: Have you talked to a lot of Germans, like prisoners or civilians?
0: No, these were mainly, these gals were mainly uh, you know, from, uh, from the different countries. They were French, they were I was on guard duty one time there, and, and this uh, and this German sho- uh, soldier comes up, and he wants to surrender to me. You know, he says, come on you know. And uh, I just figured, well, you know, if we, if we took him in, what we were going to do with him,
2: mm-hmm.
0: then we'd have to feed him. So I said, listen, I said, go on down the road. You got the British, you're down the road. Get down there and surrender to them. So I didn't even capture a German. That's one of, the, one of the things of the of the war, you know. And first in Kilbrook was, uh, as I say, we were doing nothing. I mean, you know, our outfit was, was supposed to de- detect enemy aircraft, and there was no more enemy aircraft. Yeah. So uh, all we were doing was uh, playing cards, drinking beer, going to Frankfurt, Mm. And uh, enjoying ourselves there, and uh, play a softball.
1: Great. And and how did you celebrate VE Day?
0: Uh, do I remember VE Day? You know, I don't. I remember. I remember when Roosevelt died, and that was in like middle of the April. Yeah. And we were in uh, we were in Munster then, and then on uh, May eighth, we were probably, well, <clears throat> we were probably around Brunswick. Mm-hmm. But you know the things had really calmed down a lot, and um, but we were told that uh, to be careful because some of the German civilians were still you know pretty uh you know dangerous they were upset and and they would they would like to kill you, so uh it wasn't hard to get a hold of a pistol, so uh you know and, well we were i mean our regular issue was a carbine. But, you know, you couldn't go until you know, back in the carbine, but you could you could with a pistol. Mm-hmm. So whenever, whenever we you know ventured away from the camp, we made sure that we had we were armed with the pistol. Mm-hmm. Never had to use it, thank God. And then we finally get the word that we're going to go to you know back home, and this is this is that uh, forty and eight deal. Forty men or eight horses in these old French boxcars. Yeah. Got to Marseille and basically they took your weapon and and took a lot of your equipment. See guys had been doing some black market stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh now you you had to you had to cash in your marks for dollars. Well, if you had too many marks,
2: why mm-hmm.
0: You know, you could say, well, you won so much money in gambling, but when it, got, when it got to be ridiculous, uh, you were detained. Well, I didn't have that kind of money, but uh, guys would offer me so much money if I would cash in some of their marks. And I I didn't want to mess around with them. I didn't, I didn't want to get in trouble. I wanted to get home. Mm. So I turned that down.
1: How was it like to go home at last?
0: Well, we were put on the Liberty ship. And it took about 14 days to go, and we got back to the United States and landed at Newport News, Virginia. Those liberty ships for, for men was like being on a floating cork. I mean, there was just, oh, everybody was seasick, except me, I didn't get seasick, because uh, uh, I was probably too dumb. But anyway, uh, you got shipped out from there. They had a ban plan, and they took you in for steak dinner, and everybody was cheering you, it was an exciting time. Yeah. And you could make a phone call home and talk to your mother or talk, and talk to your family. And, and they put you on the train to send you to the closest discharge center to your home.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, I, mean, I didn't have a home. Uh, my parents were divorced. or I mean, they got divorced during the time I was in service. Uh, my sister and her husband lived way out in South Dakota, and uh, my you know, closest relative was uh, my uncle, who, who lived in a little town just south of Rockford, Illinois. Well, so I said that was that was where I was going to land. and They sent me to Camp Grant, and, and at Camp Grant, you know, you got your finals, finals. I, I got my Army pay, got the little bonus, and I uh, saved some money. So I got on the bus mm-hmm. to go down to my uncle's house. As I say, it was only twenty-five or thirty-mile bus ride, and it was in the dead of winter. So about the fifteenth, eighteenth of March, and um, on the way down, I got sick. I I I got nauseated. The bus is full of people, you know, and I'm so embarrassed. We get to one of the stops along the way. And I said, you know, and I said, I'll, I'll get off here. And, you know, the bus driver took me in to the bus stop and got me a cup of coffee. He said, hey, soldier, he says, we'll just wait till you feel better. Uh-huh. in the meantime, nobody on that bus come in. Nobody on that bus made a fuss about when well, I got to get going or anything like that. They were very kind.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Very kind. I'll never, I'll never forget that. But I think I got uh, nervous and you know apprehensive about leaving the army after three years, almost three years. Yeah. At age eighteen, now I'm twenty-one, not knowing what the future was going to be. Yeah. Because I was on my own. So that was the discharge story.
1: Yeah, it was hard to readjust to civilian life.
0: Yes. Well, what I did was. I went down to where um, I'd left the service, down in this little town of LaSalle, Illinois, because uh, that's where all my buddies were. They were all coming back from the service. and But, you know, there was no question about most of us. Mm-hmm. We were on, took the GI Bill and went back to college. I finished up my one year at the, uh, the junior college there, and then went up to Beloit College in Wisconsin. And I graduated from there in 1949, and then I went to law school in Chicago, and I graduated from there in uh, 1951. So uh, once I got started, uh, you know, going to back to school, I, uh, you know, I never quit. I went to summer schools. I wanted to get through to, to my law degree as fast as possible. Mm. And then from there, I, you know, of course, passed the bar, and, and I uh, opened up a... Uh, a law practice in Wheaton, uh, Illinois, which is the suburb of
1: Chicago. And this is where you met uh, Gunter Half, or Gunner, a veteran of the 95th Infantry Division, who was actually the reason why we uh, got in touch, because his story is in my book. Did you talk about the war together?
0: You know what? It, you know There wasn't a lot of conversation about the war. In fact, Gunner Half, whose letters that you know, started you out on that project, He he mentioned... Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of times, a couple of experiences he had, Gunner was a uh, one of these guys that they uh, they sent to college at first because mm-hmm. they were going to train them to be officers. And then as we went on, they didn't need any officers. They put those smart guys in the infantry. And uh, Gunner's first, uh, he told me his first time in combat was a night assault on Metz. And then he told me about the uh, about another time that they that they came into town mm-hmm. one night they got on one side of the street and then they when they woke up in the morning that the Germans were on the other side of the street and he saw this one guy going to this going to the latrine over there and he said he plugged them uh, but that's uh, that's about the extent of that conversation now because you know everybody. I guess we were all thinking about our futures and not so much about the past.
2: Mm.
0: I didn't find out that one of the groomsmen at my wedding got two silver stars.
2: Mm.
0: He was a glider pilot. And I think, you know, I mean, just getting up on one of those things ought to get you at least a bronze star.
2: Mm. But anyway, that was,
0: um, it was no, there was not a lot of, say, well, I did this, I did that among the guys. We're all going on to what we wanted to do, what what we wanted to like.
1: You wanted to move on with your life.
0: Oh, that's right. That's mm. right. Yeah, well, I, I, without trying to sound like it was a, a big deal, but you take us, you know, you take that generous guys. We've all been through, you know, the divorce, or the, uh, the depression. Mm. and uh, And I think we learned a lot of lessons about Being responsible and doing a job, and we wanted to do better. And I think we what we really wanted to do we wanted to be we wanted a better life for our children,
2: Mm our kids.
0: We wanted to give them something that we didn't have, and we wanted a home. You know, so you had to work for that. So that's 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 kind of the attitude I think we had. So even though you may have been a big shot in the war, you were still. your your friends, your golfing buddy
1: at home. When we first exchanged emails and talked about Gunther, you, you, you told me those guys like Gunter bore the brunt of our success. And still, with your work detecting enemy aircraft, you, you probably saved thousands of lives and you certainly helped shorten the war. Do you feel like you're not getting enough recognition compared to more famous units like the US paratroopers or Rangers?
0: Yeah, well... Um, I think the limited service, you know, of course, you know, saved me from, you know, getting into combat. But but I think, you know, in our you know, looking back on it, you know, coming mm-hmm. we all kinda did the job that we were supposed to do.
2: Yeah.
0: I probably, you know, I I can't say I was the best soldier ever because, you know, I didn't get the good conduct medal until my last hour in the army and the guy didn't want to give it to me. But um now I'm really interested, you know, in the war. I'm I'm learning more about what what we did and and what the uh, hazards were. Mm-hmm. There's a book uh,
2: by uh,
0: Eric Larson called the '44. It's about the invasion and um, and about establishing the beachhead. And those guys really really saw it, you know. And but a lot of them, you know, came out. They were fine. Mm-hmm. Now, you know. Well, I guess it was our youth sort of saved us, and our soldiers. We had a, I think, even in the depression. I mean, we're, if you had a sense of humor, you could you could kind of overcome a lot of life's hardships and disappointments. You had to be able to kind of laugh at yourself once in a while,
2: mm.
0: and know that you're you know that you're not high and mighty, and that's why nobody bragged about what they did in the war.
2: Right.
1: You went back to France in 2015. How was it like? Did it bring back good or bad memories?
0: Yeah, uh, it did. It, you know, the day that we were at at the beach, it turned out to be a, uh, almost like the weather that was there on D-Day. Yeah. It was cloudy and overcast. The only difference was there wasn't anybody on the beaches. Yeah, And... And the pillbox. See, I didn't. I didn't have to go ashore. I mean, I did not go up there. I'd see the pillboxes and the fortifications, and but then you get an idea of the extent of the Omaha Beach and the museum. Uh, I was there in uh, I think 1940, 44, somewhere around there. And then to see it and when we went back, how it had expanded.
2: Mm-hmm. And then,
0: two, you, I don't think you could ever get over seeing all the crosses in the cemetery.
2: Mm.
0: But I got to say this for the Normans. I mean, they, that, uh, they still, I mean, we were treated very well. They, they, they a complimentary tour. You know, everybody, everybody was, just couldn't have been kinder. Mm. And that's the way it was the post-war, right after the war. See, I didn't have a home.
2: Mm-hmm. I didn't have
0: any, you know, family to go to. I was, I was pretty much on my own for you know, quite a few years. You know, even back in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, family took me in and gave me. I got, I took board and room there, and uh, there's no way they could feed me for what I was paying them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but, but they were they people were very kind to you, know, and I, I never realized that until later. Anyway, I practiced law for 50 years, almost 50 years, and then retired in 1997, and uh, I settled down in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: Well, thank you for sharing your story, Alan.
0: Thank you for asking me to do this. Uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing not only your your book, but the broadcast that you're going to do.
1: Sure, I'll send it to you very soon. By the way, to conclude it, do you have a message for the younger generations?
0: Yeah, you know the person to depend on is yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, your self-reliance is probably the greatest gift that you can have. Don't depend on others. Just develop a sense that that you can you can handle things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we all learned uh, growing up in the Depression and in World War
2: II.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably where we were uh, the best. Was the ability to improvise, the ability to invent things, and to you know take your K ration carton, which was wax, mm. and you could light that up, and you could put water in your helmet, and you could heat water, you could have hot water for a shave. I mean, mm. that's just the way that you could adapt. Yeah. Uh, I know this isn't part of our uh, part of our interview, but I got to tell you about my son. Yeah. His name is uh, Wilson Green, and uh, Will is a Civil War historian. Yeah, He's, uh, he's a public historian, mm-hmm. and uh, he's pretty well known for that. One of his books is just named the Book of the Year by the U.S. His- Historical Society. But I, I'm talking about young people, but I took him when he was about sixth grade. I thought, well, it's about time he saw our nation's capital. So one spring vacation, I then jumped in the car and we're driving over and on our way to Washington, D.C., uh, we had to stop in Gettysburg.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you probably know that Gettysburg was one of the major battles of the yeah. Civil War. Yeah. And uh, we, had a, we had a guide and he took us around and he explained you know, a lot of the things. The next morning, we got up to continue on to Washington and Will didn't want to leave. He wanted to go and visit more of the sites, more about the war. And uh, as a result of that, well, then he went on uh, you know, to major in, uh, in history,
2: mm. or you know,
0: the Civil War. So anyway, that's one thing, you know, history is mm. so important.
1: Yeah, you know, the same thing happened to me when my father took me when I was a kid to uh, Homa Beach and the Colville Cemetery. Um, that you mentioned earlier it got me interested in history and World War Two, and here I am.
0: Yeah, well, is that well, I mean, you have to get your inspiration from someplace, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And, and your father and your mother are the best ones to to put you on the right path.
1: Sure, they are. Well, thank you very much for your time, Alan, and most of all, for everything you've done to help win this war and our freedom.
0: Well, well thank you for recording it. Yeah. And thank you for asking me, to to uh, to do this.
1: You're welcome. That's the least I could do.
0: All right. Well, well best of luck. Bonjour.
1: <laughs> thank you. Take care.
0: Bye. Right. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I am always amazed by how humble these veterans are. Alan says he did the job he was supposed to do, but... I wonder if they will ever understand how much their actions mean to us young Europeans, enjoying today the freedom they brought us on this day, 75 years ago. Next month will be a special episode. I won't be talking to a veteran this time, but to my publisher as the big day is finally coming near. Teal Victory will be released worldwide by Pen & Sword Books in late October. It's a dream come true after all those 15 years of hard work and I can't wait for you guys to read all those incredible stories. There are more than 50 different Allied soldiers honored in the book with their personal letters published for the very first time and I hope that they will all get the recognition they deserve. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. There are a lot of great episodes coming with more veterans, I promise. Make those stories known, share them around, and hit the like button on whatever you're listening to them on. All the links for the book and social media are on and I appreciate all your messages. Till next time, thank you for listening.